Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Bibles to, um, we're going to be in two passages, and so uh, if you have a way to uh, get to those or hold your place in those, 1 Corinthians 1, and we're going to take a look also at Philippians chapter chapter 2. So we have about, anybody know how many weeks till Easter? You're counting them down? Don't look at your phone. Can you name it off the top of your head? They were saying when we were in, uh, when we were in, in Greece. How many did you say? Until Easter. Yeah. It's six weeks, six weeks, six Wednesdays anyway, I believe. Yeah, good job. They told us when we were in Greece that they celebrate Easter like we celebrate Christmas, and that's the way it really should be done, is what they said. So, anyway, Easter is coming. I thought. Um, I think that we should take this time, these weeks that we have between now and then, since we've finished our study on Second Corinthians, to focus on the cross. And so, I want to um, I want to share from a, a series we'll call "Dimensions of the Cross," and it has to do with different aspects of meaning that the cross brings into our life. And and by the cross, uh, when I talk about the cross, I I don't just mean the the wooden structure that Jesus uh, Jesus died upon, but um, I mean the sacrificial death of Christ and that and everything that was accomplished by it. And of course, behind the symbol stands an awful reality, the terrible instrument of torture and death, which the Romans used and the Greeks before them and the Persians before them. Uh, it's funny, I, as I was looking at this day, it's not, it's not probably funny, but it's ironic that the Romans looked down upon the barbarians because they crucified people while, they, while the Romans were crucifying people. But they're like, oh, we only do that to our, our worst criminals. But the barbarians <laughs> apparently did it to everybody. And so they're kind of looking down like they're so uncivilized for crucifying people. And the, and the Romans are the ones that crucified Jesus. Um. A cross is is such a surprising way to become king. Of course, uh, Christ only comes to his exaltation through crucifixion. So I mentioned 1 Corinthians 1. I'm going to take a look before we we take an in-depth look at that passage. Let's look at Philippians 2 and verses 5 and following. This is what uh, some call the Christ hymn, the Christ hymn. And they think that it's either a piece of poetry or it may be an early song from the early church. If so, uh, it's probably one of the earliest songs that we know of from the Christian church, besides the the Psalm, the Book of Psalms that would have been carried over from Israel's worship. And it's a it comes in the way of a challenge. Paul is setting down some examples as he goes through uh, the Philippian letter, and he's first of all encouraging here that people should be humble and treat one another from the place of humility. And he says, in your relationships with one another, uh, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, 
and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even the death on a cross. Let's put, let's stop here for a moment and think about this. I wanted to show it on the screen. I couldn't I couldn't get it done in time, but um, I want to ask you what kind of direction do you think that this uh, these first verses are going? What direction? If you could name a put a direction to this, what what direction would that be? Okay, let's look at it again. Verses six through eight. Okay, yeah, but let's just name a direction. What are some directions? Okay, left, right. Okay, what direction do you think do you think this passage is going? It's down, and and I want to suggest that increasingly so, from uh, equality with God, He doesn't ha- hold that as something to cling to or be used to His own advantage. Rather. He made himself nothing. He humbled himself. There's a lot of discussion about what that word uh, particularly means. But he humbled himself. He emptied himself of uh, his prerogatives, you could say, as God. He laid those aside in order to become uh, a servant. Okay? He takes on the nature of, of humanity, okay? found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. That's down even further. Okay, and then not just death of any kind, but then death on the cross. That's as low as you can go. Okay, so they uh, they reserved the crucifixion. Romans didn't didn't execute everybody by crucifixion. Uh, most people, if you were getting executed and you were in good graces and other ways with Rome, they would probably behead you or something like that. But in this case, uh, this was a uh, a manner of execution that's reserved for criminals and slaves. Okay, so Jesus died a slave's death. Okay, that's, let that set in for a moment. So going from the throne room of God where all of the angels are worshiping him to a slave's death, that's a downward descent. You agree? Okay, so... Then I would like you to notice right at the middle of this poem or the middle of this hymn, there's a, there's a hinge, and that hinge is the cross. Okay, So after the cross, we see some, some other direction being taken. Okay, Look at what it is. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place. What direction is that? That's up. Okay, Back up again to the highest place and gave him a name that's above. What direction is that? Up. Every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so at the center of this uh, exaltation of Christ, he's, he's humbled himself, he's humbled himself, he's humbled himself even further, the cross, and then being raised from the dead and ascending on high, he's exalted, exalted, exalted to the highest place. Do you see that? This this has taken place within the context of the cross. So I, I wanted to relate that because it's interesting how Jesus views the cross. And John, he talks about as he's getting nearer and nearer to the day when he'll lay down his life, he talks about his glorification. I, uh, the Son of Man was about to be glorified in the book of John, John 12 23, he refers to his glorification being close at hand, that he's getting ready to be glorified. And what does he mean? He's getting ready to be lifted up. We, we used to sing this song, 
when I was a kid, and I don't think we thought about, people didn't think about what it meant in context, but uh, we used to sing a song, Lift Jesus Higher, Lift Jesus Higher, Lift Him Up for the World to See, and that's wonderful, but they took that verse out of John where lifting him up means crucify him. So it was kind of an ironic thing that we were singing exalt him, which is true, but uh, when Jesus talked about being lifted up, he was talking about being lifted up on the cross. Okay, so uh, the cross is the way in which he became glorified, or it's the means through which he became glorified. And this is, this is not what we would have expected, that someone would become king by laying down or having their life taken from them. I know that uh, Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, I freely lay it down. But everybody who was involved in that thought they were crucifying Jesus. Okay? And you understand that they did have a part to play in that, that they're guilty of that. When the disciples preach later in uh, the temple complex, I think Peter may have said there to the religious authorities, he talked about how you, with the help of sinful men, crucified the Lord of glory. Okay, so uh, he under, they understand that they had a part in this, but this was also by God's design, and Jesus freely laid down his life in the midst of this. The devil must have had a part to play in all of this. But all of these things converged together, and it was the, the way in which Jesus would ultimately be glorified. Because Jesus died on the cross, his name is preached as the means of salvation around the world. Think about that, because he was crucified, and he died on our behalf. He was, he was uh, lifted up. As a result of that, so I often wondered about when I was a kid how uh, why God didn't choose a different method. Why didn't He just forgive? Why didn't He just say, "Well, your sins are forgiven. I'm not going to go to that kind of trouble." Can anything anybody think of something that might have been lost? Maybe you can think differently than I would on this, but. Um, what might have been lost had Jesus not been crucified, despite the fact that there needed to be a punishment for sin? Let's throw that one out there as a freebie. What else might have been lost? Justice? Okay. Okay. And you mean that in the way of, uh, as an example to Christians about how to live? Yeah, that's good. Uh, uh, that's what the writer to Hebrews says, that we're to look to Jesus, the author and finish of our faith, who endured the cross, and so we're to find and draw inspiration from him. Anything else you can think of? How about demonstrated love? You ever thought about the cross in terms of that? God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's demonstrated love. John 3.16, which doesn't mean God loved the world so much. That's true. He loved the world that much. But it means, so means God loved the world just so, in this way. And he goes on to say, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So there, there's a lot of reasons, and probably some of them we don't realize, but tonight we'll, we'll deal with uh, some of the reasons why it had to be this way. Hey, God knows all the reasons, and there are some reasons, as, as I said, that I think may be beyond um, our limited wisdom now. 
But the thing that I wanted to point out as we think about this, we're, we're talking tonight about uh, the cross as God's wisdom. The cross is God's wisdom. Okay, the, the thing that occurs to me in this salvation's plan is how wise it was that God would do it this particular way. Salvation was accomplished through the cross, and in doing so, God outsmarted the devil. What do you think the enemy wanted to do when Jesus was on earth? Get rid of him. Kill him. What do you think sinful man wanted to do? The religious leaders are a great uh, uh, symbolic fit for this category. What do you think they wanted to do? They wanted to kill him. Okay, uh, Rome... I think in one sense, they wanted to get rid of any insurrections, even if it wasn't focused and personal. I think you could say that any anybody claiming to be some other kind of king that doesn't submit to their authority, they're going to put to death. We have all kinds of people. So uh, God outsmarts the devil. The devil goes right along with what he wants to do in his desire. And, and as he does all of that, God still wins the victory. He outsmarts sinful humanity. And then a third area, he outsmarts pride in Christian living. And uh, as we come to the end tonight, I hope to show how that works. It's not just that Jesus became king, but it's how he became king. It's how, it's how he became king. Uh, God was wise in the way uh, that he did all of this. So let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and we'll... We'll take a look, actually chapter one, and we'll take a look at this passage in depth that we want to deal with tonight and see how how the cross is the wisdom of God. All right, Paul writing to the Corinthians who they have a pride problem and they have a, a worldview problem. They're not they're not uh, transformed in, by the renewing of their minds yet, so they're still bringing with them a lot of them. Because Corinth is mostly a Greek uh, population, they're bringing with them all of their uh, their Greek ways of thinking, and and not all of that's bad. But in in one area, it has to do with elevating wisdom to a height uh, that it shouldn't go to, and uh, they have interest in they have, they have pride issues that are causing division. And so Paul is writing this passage to challenge that. And we we know about that. We just came through a mini multi week study on all of that. But as we look at uh, this passage, let's just read through it, and then we'll talk about the parts of it. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent will I frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law, the philosopher of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know God, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand a sign and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block, to Jews and foolishness to Greeks, but to those of us, to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. 
Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. So that no one may boast before him. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. The him is God there. Who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. All right. First we have in verse 18. Look at uh, verse 18 with me if you would. We have a statement of fact. What is the statement of fact there? Verse 18, all of it. What is that? Well, it's all of verse 18. Anyone want to say it? Okay. Okay, so Paul lays down this fact. He's not yet justified it yet. He's come out of chapter 1 where he's talked about, or he's come out of the previous part of chapter 1 where he's talked about preaching foolishness. It seems foolish to people this way that God has chosen to save the world. And I have to tell you that still, at times, it strikes me how odd this way is. I mean, it's the only thing I've known from the time that I've been born is this particular, you know, I've known uh, what the gospel is about. And yet, at sometimes, it really strikes me that this is peculiar. Does that do that to anybody else, or am, am I unspiritual in my thinking? That God should choose this way is peculiar. And I think in saying that, you're not being unspiritual. I think you're agreeing with what Paul says here, that this is a peculiar way. Why, why would God overpower the world, not through strength, when he has all the power in the world, but through weakness? It shows his wisdom in doing so. So he makes a statement of fact. The message of cross, the message of the cross is foolishness. Who's it foolishness to? Everybody? The the unsaved, the the perishing. What does it mean by perishing? Okay. Yes. There's uh they're on their way to perdition. So because they aren't uh, following the Lord, their heart isn't set on the ways of God. They've not been, they've not been converted. They, the way they think of the gospel message is, this is foolish. This is foolish. Why would God, who has all power, choose to um, become king through laying down his life? That seems, I mean, if you think about strategy... Usually the king uh, who wins is the one that exerts the most force. Do you see that? But that's not what happens, is it? Not in this. He lays down his life. He goes the way of weakness. But to us who are being saved, the it is the power of God. What's the it here? What's the power of God here? The gospel, the message of the cross. The cross is the power of God to us who are being saved. You see how, depending on where you stand, it looks differently. 
People probably all the time drive past this church on Sunday and think those foolish people. Some people who grow up in church and are no longer serving God, they'll drive past and think, what a waste of time. If only they knew that we're just biology, we're just our biology. And when the machine runs out, we're all gone. That's a tragic way to look, look at life, isn't it? We know God has uh, created us with purpose, and he's done something for us, and we have a different perspective on all of this, that Christ dying on the cross gives to us, displays for us, um, brings into our life the power of God. Okay, That's uh, really important. You know, and some of us who grew up Pentecostal, we need to understand it's not just the Spirit of God, and I know the Spirit of God's involved in this, but there's power in the cross. There's power in what Christ has accomplished on the cross. Verse 19, so I'd I'd like you to know this. That's kind of a statement of fact. Paul is just making that. He hasn't yet justified it. He just says, hey, Corinthians, you know what? Uh, Those who are perishing think this is foolish. Those Those of you who are being saved, you know the power of this message, okay? So then the next thing that we have in verse 19 is the reason why these facts are true. Why are these facts true? Uh, Paul here quotes a prophecy from Isaiah 29, 14, and it says this, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Okay, Who's the, who's the I in that passage. Who is it? God. It's God. So the reason why this this fact is happening in verse 18 is because in verse 19, it tells us that God has designed the gospel to work a certain way. God has designed the gospel to work a certain way. So the reason why these facts are true is that God made it his purpose to work against people proudly putting confidence in their own ability to be saved. Notice uh, he says, there, I will destroy, um, destroy the wisdom of the wise. Destroy means do away with as an approach to God. He's not destroying wisdom. I, it's not that he's destroying wisdom. What he's doing is he's destroying wisdom as an approach. You can't get there by wisdom. You can't get to God in your own wisdom. Okay, so he's taking that out of the way. You can't get to God in man's wisdom. Then he says, I will frustrate uh, the intelligence of the intelligent. Okay, to frustrate um, what he's frustrating here uh, is intelligence or some kind of uh, intuition to get to know God. Something that he's, he's taken away a confidence. That's what this frustration is, is taking away a confidence. Of intelligence as a means of figuring God's out, God's way out, figuring out God's way, um, and so that uh, particular intelligence proves to be a dead end. He quotes from uh, Isaiah twenty nine fourteen, where people had reasoned their way into thinking that they were okay. So, if you know the problem in Isaiah, the problem in Isaiah is this: is that just uh, prior to this, I think he says, uh, these people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So what they were doing was going to the temple and doing sacrifices. and They were following ritual, but their heart was far away from God. And so Isaiah comes in and challenges them on that, says, you guys can't just be going through the motions. 
And a lot of them had reasoned that because we're going through the motions, we're okay with God because we're doing what he asked us to do. Never mind, they didn't want to have anything to do with him outside the temple. They didn't follow ethical principles that should come from their faith. They didn't take those outside the temple complex. They lived terribly towards one another. And so they had reasoned in their mind a certain thing that they were okay. And so God says, I'm going to frustrate all of these man-made approaches to getting close to me. They're going to have to find themselves humble. So he challenges them uh, in, in that. Notice uh, here in verse... Something got switched here. Give me one second. Okay, verse 20. Look at verse 20 with me. We're right on track here. Verse 20 says this. It says, where is the wise person? Uh, Where is the teacher? Where is the philosopher of this age, the debater of this age? So here's the evidence Paul is calling upon as he relates this principle that God has frustrated the wisdom of the wise. And um, he's saying, think about this. When you think about the church, where is the so-called wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? You don't see them coming and joining your meetings. Do you see that? He's asking that question. So he's appealing now to their personal experience. Then he draws a conclusion in verse 20. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Okay, so there he's saying now that though though there are wise people out there, they can't count upon that for an approach to him. He's made that foolish when it comes to all of the things that are uh, out there in terms of knowledge. They're not a good approach to him. And then verse 21 is an explanation. It says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. So here's an explanation. He he makes it ineffectual, this uh, worldly wisdom, for knowing him. So think about how this applies to us today. We've got a a near religion on our hands in in what's called scientism, okay? Science is not the enemy of Christianity. Are you with me? Science isn't the enemy of Christianity. Scientism is. Scientism is the belief that science has all the answers that we need. It doesn't. Because it can't ask fundamental questions like why is there a world to begin with? It can only describe what is. It can't give us explanations as to why. And there are other things that science can't do. It can't go back into history and test out the facts of history. It can't do that because experiments are things that have to be repeated. And there are some events of history, like the resurrection, that are one-offs. It happens once, and that's all that's needed. We don't need Jesus to be raised from the dead in every generation. We needed that to happen once. And you can't test that in a laboratory, right? And who was there at creation to observe how the universe unfolded. None of us. And so there's there's no ability for science to... We can see things about that, but you can't, you can't test that in a laboratory. 
So science has given us a lot of knowledge through observation, but it can't prove or disprove God, and it cannot prove or disprove the facts of the gospel, which are a matter of historical investigation and not laboratory investigation. You know, it can't even say that a person can't rise from the dead. Science can only say that as far as they can tell, people don't rise from the dead. But they can't say absolutely that no one's ever risen from the dead. Science can't say that. Only that the evidence shows that people don't rise from the dead. Well, to uh, Christianity's credit, we're not looking for everybody who have risen from the dead. We're just looking for one person, right? Jesus. And he's the first fruits of what will come in a future age when we will all be raised in resurrected bodies. So science has given us a lot of neat gadgets, but it can't give us Jesus, and it can't give us eternal life. So uh, I'm really suspicious about these uh, claims of uh, cryogenic freezing of people's brains until a future age when science can figure out how to put on robot bodies or whatever, and then we can live forever. I'm, I'm suspicious about that because the Bible tells it a little differently that we're all going to stand before God one day, that it's appointed to man once to die, and then to face judgment. So we have here in this first part, the message of the cross is counterintuitive. And that's the verses we just looked at. It's counterintuitive. You don't, you can't figure it out. And I think C.S. Lewis said in uh, maybe Mere Christianity, he said, it's something that you never would have guessed. You never would have guessed this. Uh, it's something that had to be revealed. The second area that we see here that shows us the wisdom of God in this is God was so wise that he he put the he put the fruit low enough where somebody could pick it up, but people who are high minded they're going to look right past it. So the second part is that the message of the cross is sifting. It's sifting. That means to what does sift mean? Separate, right? Between Usually between two things. Like you're separating one thing from another. And so when I say that the message of the cross is sifting, what is it, what is it sifting? The belief from unbelief. That's a, that's a really kind way to say it. I was going to say the believer from the unbeliever. But belief from unbelief, that, that's a great way to, to say that. Verse 22, notice uh, Paul says here uh, that we, we preach Christ and him crucified. A problem for some. Okay, so he talks about how the, the Jewish people, they demand a sign. The Greeks are looking for wisdom. Remember, Jesus was always dealing with uh, uh, religious leaders of his day, and they're like, show us a sign. He says, oh my goodness. Uh, I mean, that's in my paraphrase, but uh, a wicked and perverse generation seeks after a sign. No sign will be given to this generation except the sign of, he mentioned a few of them, right? Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, he's, he talks about the sign of Jonah, who was in the whale for three days, right? Which was kind of a picture of the resurrection. He says that's the kind of sign that will be there, but... Uh, there was plenty of evidence, but they were they kept looking, they kept wanting Jesus to fit their mold. This is what we think 
the Messiah should look like, and he never would do that. He can never fit. Um, he never fit in their uh, scenario of, of what the Messiah should look like or or what he should be doing. And so, the Jews demanded a sign. He said he didn't. He didn't give the sign that they wanted. And the Greeks looked for wisdom. They were looking for some kind of high way of thinking and. It wasn't really about that. It wasn't. It wasn't about having some um, sophisticated philosophy. Although I think Christianity is really sophisticated once you get in the door. Okay, getting in the door is so easy. Was it Alice, Alice in Wonderland where she had to shrink down in order to go through the door? Am I misremembering my fairy tales? I didn't think of saying this till just now. But I think she drank something or took something or ate something and got really small and then went through the door. And once she's through the door, there's a whole world in there. And I think Christianity is kind of like that. You have to shrink down to go through the door. But once you get inside, there's a sophisticated world that God has for us when we have knowledge with the concept of God. It's, it's really, really amazing. The Greeks were looking for wisdom, but they, they didn't see it in the gospel. And you can see that on some different occasions. We'll talk about one in just a moment. But the message of Christ didn't fit their requirements. So he goes on to say here, and this is in verse 23, okay? We preach Christ crucified. So the Jews are looking for a sign, and Paul saying, I don't have a sign. Okay, and the Greeks are looking for wisdom, and Paul's saying, I'm not here to talk about wisdom. We preach Christ crucified. We preach the cross. Remember he says earlier, when I was with you, I desired to know, no, or maybe it's later, I desired to know nothing while I was among you except Christ and him crucified. We preach the cross. So this wasn't what they wanted, and we shouldn't be surprised if the, some of the world doesn't want to hear our message. Give yourself a little bit of a break that if somebody doesn't receive the gospel when you witness to them, that's not, that's not always your fault. Right? Anybody willing to say amen to that for the sake of somebody else sitting in here? I mean, amen, right? We, we want to see people, one, we're trying to share the good news if people don't come. Um, maybe the problem is them. So it's he he talks about it being a stumbling block to the Jews. What was one of the big problems that um, the Jewish people had? Paul, I think, had this, and he had to work it out somehow. It talks about in um, I think the Book of Acts and a little bit in uh, Galatians about how Paul goes into the desert of Arabia for three years, and uh, some people, some scholars believe that Paul had to go work out his theology now that he said yes to Jesus, he had some intellectual baggage he had to work through. Like, how does, how does this fit with the Old Testament? How does this fit with some of the things that, that I know to be true? And one of them was that the Bible says in uh, Deuteronomy twenty one twenty three, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. In other words, Let's say it in a different way that is a little more clear. Anyone who hangs on a tree is under God's curse. How can Jesus be Messiah and be under God's curse? He had to wrestle with that. He knew he met Jesus. He knew that there was that he 
needed to put his faith in Jesus that this was the resurrected Lord, but how do I, how do I work around that? Do I just abandon the scriptures that I've known? I can't do that. So I had to work through that. He writes in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because the Bible says, it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Isn't that interesting? So he's seen, okay, Jesus isn't under God's curse because he's cursed. He's under God's curse because he took my curse. That's a, that was a huge stumbling block. How can we see Jesus as the Messiah? He died on a Roman uh, tree. He can't be blessed by God. He can't be under God's blessing. He can't be the blessed one. And Paul reasons through that and says, no, you know what? He's taken our curse. That's why he was under God's punishment. It was because of what we did wrong. So he sees a way around that. But not everybody saw that. You, you will remember in Acts that as Paul preached from town to town, especially in Macedonia, he had some people from one of the synagogues that were following him, causing trouble wherever he went. These are his his part of his brotherhood in terms of his nationality, and they made his life miserable wherever he went. Well, the Bible also says that it's not only a stumbling block to the Jews, but it's also foolishness to the Greeks. How can the gospel be wisdom and yet foolishness at the same time? Uh, the Greeks had in mind something different, and I think part of the problem was the gospel didn't fit their paradigm. And, and here's one way this could have worked out is that uh, to many uh, Greeks of the day, they would have been Platonists. They believed in the philosophy of Plato, and Plato believed that there was a re- reality that lie below this material world. So there was like a sub-world that was really the real and all that we're seeing is an emanation of it. And so some people took that philosophy and thought that if I really want to get to what's really real, I need to escape this material body and go into the spirit world, and then I'll experience what's really real. And so you, you wouldn't be able to get there by taking your life. You needed to live the proper life. But then at the end of that, you want to desperately to get out of this body and get into another world, a spiritual world. Which, by the way, um, our destiny is not to escape the world and go into a spirit world. We're coming back to a new world that God's going to create. That he's going to take us to heaven. And then at some point, there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And we will have resurrected bodies. So there's still a body. But the Greek way of thinking was escape. So Paul is now preaching. Jesus went away to the spirit world. And then he resurrected and came back. And they think that's scandalous. Why would he do that? Why would he do that if what they wanted to do was get out? Why would he ever come back? And so that was a mental block for some, was that he would want to come back. There seemed to be no reason. Okay, Others thought if they were Stoics, uh, they thought in terms of this world is all that there is. And so any talk of the resurrection is foolishness. It just flew right over their head. Like, there is no other world. Where would he have gone to come back from? And so they had a problem with that kind of thinking. You remember in Acts 17, 
Paul preaches at Mars Hill in Athens, and when he gets done preaching, it says that some believed. First, it says that some mocked when he started talking about the resurrection. Their problem was the resurrection. Okay, Some mocked that. Some believed. There were others that wanted to hear more. Okay, So they, they couldn't quite get a grasp on what he was talking about. It was foolishness to them. And then there were others that may have had just a problem with the weak way in which Jesus became king in people's eyes, and that was to conquer through crucifixion. That's ridiculous. Verse 24 shows us that we preach a solution to others. He says, But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. He is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Some in the Jewish camp, they couldn't get past the stigma of the cross. Some in the Greek camp couldn't get past what appeared to be foolishness. But there were some who were both Jewish and some who were Greek, and Greek probably here means more broad, like Gentile, uh, who gave their hearts to Christ and got saved. And, and in that, Christ becomes the power of God and the wisdom of God. Okay, that's the irony, is the thing that looks weak is actually power. The thing that looks foolish is actually wise. That's the, con- that's the uh, apparent contradiction here, the irony, the paradox of what Christianity is. And then he says this in verse 25, that he gives his justification for preaching a, fool, a foolish message, that the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. Okay, God stoops down to his lowest level of wisdom, and it still far outstrips our greatest and highest wisdom. Are you with me on that? So uh, God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. He toppled the world through dying on a cross. He preached the solution. The justification is it's wiser though it seems foolish. It's more powerful, though it seems weak. The final thing here is the message of the cross is humbling. It's humbling. If it's wise, uh, though it seems foolish, if it's powerful, though it seems weak, it's also humbling to the person. Where is the wise person, he said. Now he says in verse 26, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. This is further evidence, by the way, further evidence that that God is doing things in a way that is uh, is taking weakness and turning it into strength, taking foolishness and turning it into wisdom. This is the further evidence. Not many of you are wise, influential, and noble. Okay, so when we talk about this, sometimes it feels like an insult. Like, man, Paul's saying <laughs> the church; those people aren't the cream of the crop. It, it, that's what it comes across as a little bit. Those people aren't the greatest. This was not an insult in that day. Uh, this is a statement of fact coming from a world in which there's no middle class. Do you know that there's no middle class? There's the rich and the poor. And you're either noble or you're not. And most of the people who lived, they knew they weren't nobles. Most people who lived, they knew that they weren't the high, sophisticated philosophers of the age. And they knew that they weren't of noble birth. 
you know, I mean, we know we know that, right? I mean, how many of you are related to the Queen of England? We we know that we're not noble in that sense, okay? And they would have known that too. And so Paul is pointing out the fact. Look, just take a straw poll and find out: Are there how many uh, of the nobility are among you? Well, maybe not very many. Well, this is proof, but don't be ashamed of that. Be proud of that because God is doing a great thing among you. Verse 27, this is a further explanation. God chose to do it this way, and he did the same thing with Israel. Look at what it says in verse 27. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. So he talks about these things, the the foolish, the weak, the lowly, the despised, things that are not. That's a further explanation of what God is doing. He's choosing particular ways to demonstrate his power. I think there's a, a practical way that this can apply in our lives. Sometimes we like to bring our, our uh, gifts to God and say, well, we're, we're good at this and we're not so good at that. Or for me, I'm not, I don't feel I'm a very good people person by nature. You bring your gift, okay? So God sometimes chooses things that are counter to um, what we feel are our strengths or um, part of our personality. So... Maybe you, you say, I'm not good at talking in front of people, okay? God might love to get a hold of your mouth and your lips, and your voice, to say some great things. Heather one time said when she was a teenager, I will never, I will never get up in front of people and talk. And she's learned since then. You don't say never to God. That's He takes that as a personal challenge. And... She was our children's pastor and did an excellent job for a long time. And now she just trusts God and gets up and speaks in front of people. It's no big deal. I think God loves to take things that we feel that we're not good at or things that we are reticent to give him and use them for strength. He did did that with Israel. I remember one time there's a parallel passage to this in the Old Testament where God is calling out Israel that they've gotten proud. And he says, think, you know, you weren't the most numerous of people. You weren't the most powerful in terms of armies. Uh, I mean, you're basically a family that I'm taking around to different places. Yet, I've set my affections upon you, and I've loved you, and I've redeemed you. So what credit do you get in that, Israel? And church, what credit do we get in being who we are? Are we like, we're God's favorite because we were special to our mom or we've got all these great gifts or whatever. Verse 29 tells us the reason God does things this way. This is kind of a purpose statement here. So that no one may boast before him. So that no one may boast before him. You're, God chose to save this way through the cross so that no one can boast before him thinking, I figured this out. Nobody would have figured it out that God was going to do it this way. Even, even though he revealed and he gave solid hints about how he was going to do things. Think of Isaiah 53. I mean, the suffering servant, right? Isaiah 53. 
right? Anybody remember the verses from that? Iniquity. Chastisement of our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. Uh, so there's hints of it, but even the people who were expecting him and knew the scriptures best, they didn't look for that. How did they miss it? They were looking for uh, the son of David to come riding in on a white steed, bringing a sword and kicking the Romans out. They missed it. How did they miss it? He flew in under the radar. He was born not in Rome, not even in Ephesus, not even in Jerusalem, in Bethlehem. He grew up not in Jerusalem, not in Rome, not in Alexandria, in Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth, one of the disciples said? My goodness. He's Galilee. He speaks with a northern accent. Well, he wanted to do all of that, and he, he chose us in this particular way, and we had to humble ourselves so that nobody can boast before him. This is God's wisdom. No one can say, I got here because I was noble or smart or good or rich or well-liked. No, because that would undermine our need. Our need is that we all stand as paupers spiritually before God. And under the condemnation of sin. And it doesn't matter how well you're liked and how good you are at your job or how many scriptures you know. What matters is that Jesus died on the cross and he undermines all of our pride by doing it that way. You can't be saved because of any of that stuff. Verse 30 shows us the humble truth. It's because of him, it's because of him, God that you're in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus. God has done what was what had needed to be done, and we are what we are because of Christ. This foolish way has led us to total dependency on Him. And notice that we are what we are in Christ, that we are in we are enfranchised into Christ, that we are sons and daughters because we're in Christ and we take on his relationship to the Father. That we get a relationship as parent to child because we're in Christ who is in a relationship with the Father in that way. And it says that because you're in Christ, this is wisdom, this is salvation, and all that salvation holds, righteousness, holiness, and redemption. This is the, uh, Christ has become for us the wisdom of God. Okay, everybody could talk about how much they know, but when it comes to this, you just have to know one thing, right? I mean, you don't you don't have to know your end time eschatological chart and figure out when Jesus is coming back in relationship to the tribulation, the millennium, and when the new heavens and new earth, and what year all of that's in, which you can't know anyway because the Bible says we can't. We need to know Jesus died for our sins. He rose again. We're trusting in him. Amen. The application is this. This is it. We're we got 1 minute. 
the application is this, boast about the Lord. Verse 31, therefore, as it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Boast in the Lord. Boast about the Lord, not yourself. A word the Corinthians needed to hear. They were gathering they were gathering people into their little cliques based upon who they thought was most spiritual. And it was all built around pride because they'd still they were still adopting worldly ways of thinking about value. And we do that still. Do you know that? If you think the homeless person is less valuable than you, that's not a Christian worldview. Are you with me? Because the Christian worldview says everybody has the image of God. So we boast in the Lord. We boast in the Lord. That's the thing. Don't boast about yourself. Don't boast about how good you are, how spiritual we are, how many spiritual gifts we seem to be able to exercise or what position we have within the church or how long we've been serving God. Let's boast that we know the Lord and that God has been good. He's done it all. He deserves all of the credit. The summary of observations is this. The nature of the gospel is such that we couldn't figure it out without being told. We needed to have God tell us through revelation or through a witness. The nature of the gospel is such that it has built uh, built in exits for the proud. So you come to Jesus Christ and... Maybe there's something you don't agree with. There's an exit there, the stumbling block that he calls it, or the foolishness. Okay, So we have to come and we have to bow before him. And then the nature of the gospel is such that we're required to come to humbly depend upon him, no boasting. And these things really come down to the cross as the means through which God accomplished our salvation. Maybe it always had to be this way because... God decreed it so, but think about Adam and Eve when they sinned, the thing that they did. What did they do? Anybody remember? They sinned, they ate the fruit, and then God comes, and what did they do? They hid. Anybody remember what they hid behind? A bush, a tree? And then when they were covered, they covered their nakedness with leaves. They hid behind trees. And Jesus dies on the cross for our sin, and he's nailed to the front of the tree. He exposes sin for what it is, for all to see. The cross demonstrates also what the world would like to do to God. We don't want you. They took Jesus and they crucified him. He told a parable about uh, the vineyard and the stewards of the vineyard and how uh, they had other people that came in and these vineyard workers kicked them out. And finally, the the vineyard owner's son comes and they killed him and says, we're going to seize this for ourselves. That's what they want to do. They want to get rid of Jesus. The cross is foolishness to the world, but it's the wisdom of God. And I want to encourage you, don't be ashamed of the cross. Let's acknowledge that some are too proud to bend down to receive salvation as a gift. Some are too clever in their own eyes to see how God could accomplish something so amazing with the deck stacked against him. There is reason in it, but reason which only the humble heart can grasp. Romans 1 says, I'm not, I'm obliged both to the Greek and the non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That's why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God. It brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, 
and then to the Gentile. For the gospel, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that's by faith from first to last. Just as it's written, the righteous will live by faith. Amen. Let's stand. Thanks for your patience. We took three minutes longer. Father, thank you that you've accomplished something so wise and it seems so foolish and odd and peculiar at times, but it displays your wisdom that you can you can beat the world at its own game by dying. It shows how wise you really are. I pray you help us to communicate the gospel without shame and give people the real truth. Let's tell them the truth. Help us to tell them the truth about what you've done. To not feel embarrassed if they don't understand or ashamed if they think it's ridiculous. I just pray, Lord, that you would help us to be firmly convinced and to know that it's the power of God and the wisdom of God and to remember that we um, owe all of it to the fact that you came and died on the cross for our sins. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. I remembered something that uh, Richard Dawkins said in a debate with John Lennox. If you haven't seen that, it's pretty interesting. They do it in the uh, Oxford Library of Natural Museum of Natural History. Um, Richard Dawkins said to John Lennox, somebody dying for somebody else's sin, that's so petty. And all that that shows me is that what Paul said is true, that sometimes the smartest people, they just don't get it. Amen. Let's trust in the great and wise gospel God's given us. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.